WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week, our guest is the writer of comics, including AWA's Not All Robots, Marvel's Fantastic Four Life Story, Ahoy's Second Coming, and the upcoming My Bad, and Vault's Dead Box. Uh, please welcome Mark Russell. Thank you for coming on the show, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, we'll start off a little topical here. Uh, between the Delta variant and the fall of Afghanistan, how are you enjoying the end of days? You know what? It's uh, it's a lot more uh, colorful than I expected. I expected it to be, you know, a lot gray and dark, but it's, you know, this is kind of, I think, the way the end was always going to come for America. It's like it's going with, with fireworks and, you know, uh, explosions in the street. It's like it's like a, the end of the world is envisioned by an 80s action movie. <laughs> so... Peak America. I, I, yeah. I, you know, there, there's some people who wanted Red Dawn to be real, just so, <laughs> I don't know, they could yell Wolverines. Yeah. I, I feel each day I wake up, in a way, it's sort of, uh, I've become desensitized to the horrors. There's just too many of them. It's like mm-hmm. when they, they say that if you, uh, like the guy who um, accidentally shot a nail gun into his head, yeah. So then to alleviate the pain, he then shot a nail gun into his like arm. And one is like, that's kind of the way I feel like it is now. It's like, I can't concentrate too much on any one horror because there's too many of them in a way. They sort of like all canceled each other out. I don't even know which one to be bothered by anymore. Uh, yeah. I, I imagine the forest fires are probably, you know, those are top, a little in the yeah, top close five. To <laughs> They're not an existential threat to the human race, uh, except for to the extent that they are a consequence and global warming but yeah it does make you feel like maybe uh maybe that buying a house wasn't the the long-term plan you thought it was um yeah it's in last year we had we were on like the notice and i'm in portland i'm not in the middle of the woods Mm -hmm. uh but we were on the notice to be ready to evacuate we were on the schedule where we had to like come up with a bag full of like clothes and cans of food and stuff and be on ready to go at a moment's notice luckily it didn't happen but, you know, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the canoe going over the waterfall. I can't imagine what it's going to be like 10 years from now. Good, good point. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, all that uh, aside, you know, I, I just listed, uh, in introducing you, listed a ton of books. Uh, you know, is it, is it my imagination or, or are you in a, in a fertile writing period right now? Well, actually, you know, what happened was last year, because of COVID, they shut down the industry for a few months and so a lot of projects i have been working on that were you know sort of got frozen so now it looks like i'm super like i'm writing a ton of stuff which i am but it, but it, but it's more because a lot of the stuff that would have come out normally in 2020 has been pushed to 2021 mm. uh so i have a lot of stuff coming out at the same time uh which is good um but but yeah i'm also writing a lot right now just not on those things it's weird because the things i'm promoting are the things i wrote like seven or eight months ago they're not the things i'm currently mm-hmm. thinking about so you have to sort of jog your memory a little bit uh you know with, yeah with, with, <laughs> oh, this, this is the robot one oh, okay all right um <laughs> yeah which one is this the uh right the the jesus one or the... <laughs> um i i was i was curious because you know i obviously that was a big factor last year, how much of it was because of, of the pandemic, either the right. pencils down orders or just, you know, being at home a little bit more. Yeah. All of it really. Uh, although I have to, I have to say, ironically being home more made me less productive because it was easier when I could go somewhere else to write uh, because I don't have all the distractions at home. I don't have the refrigerator staring at me or, you know, the TV or mm-hmm. people coming up and asking me questions. Uh, it was a skill. It took, it took me a while to learn how to write at home uh, productively. And also being in the middle of a pandemic didn't hurt, didn't help much either, you know, because there's the all aesthetic load of all those stress and pressures of like watching civilization fall apart and potentially living in like a fascist dictatorship at one point you know it's it's it just adds up it all kind of saps at your creativity but i'm i'm happy to say that you know it it didn't that that i this sounds very selfish and self-absorbed but i came out the other side i guess like it i it didn't ruin me it didn't destroy me i was able to keep working that that is that's the best you can hope for uh certainly now did you have like was it 
it was your kind of go-to place to, to write before that, you know, like a coffee shop somewhere? Were you working? Did you have like a studio that you could check into from time to time? I, uh, yeah, I didn't have a studio, but I, but I would write at coffee shops. I would write at the local library a lot. Sometimes in the evening I would go to a bar. Uh, the bar is probably the least productive <laughs> place to write, mm-hmm. but, but it was probably the most fun as well. Certainly. So uh, I'll, I'll ask this because it's a thing that people are talking about right now. Uh, but quite frankly, if you replied with, I don't know what you're talking about, it might actually be a little sigh of relief. Uh, will you be pivoting to Substack? I have no plans to pivot to Substack. Of course, they haven't made me like, you know, I'm, I'm like small potatoes. So they haven't given me like this giant offer like they have, you know, some of the other creators. So I couldn't I can't say definitively, oh, I would never do that. Plus, I mean, I don't really know what the future holds for the industry. True. So, uh, but yeah, as of now, I have no plans at all to go to Substack. They've, I, I doubt I'm even a blip on their radar. Okay. Uh, so uh, kind of getting into your work now, uh, since they were kind enough to facilitate this interview, let's let's start off talking about Not All Robots. Uh, yes. Which is your AWA series with Mike Diodato. Uh, for, for the reader, I'm going to go ahead and read the solicit text. In the year 2056, robots have replaced human beings in the workforce. An uneasy coexistence develops between the newly intelligent robots and the 10 billion humans living on Earth. Every human family is assigned a robot upon whom they are completely reliant. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, Meet the Walters, a human family whose robot Razorball uh, ominously spends his free time in the garage working on machines, uh, which they are pretty sure are designed to kill them. So uh, I generally like to start by asking creators about the origins of, of books like this. But the thing I'm, I'm actually uh, immediately, most immediately curious about is uh, how did you get paired with, uh, with Mike on this book? That was all Axel Alonso's doing because he knew Mike from Marvel. It was Marvel mm-hmm. days, obviously. And, he, uh, and I, was, I, was only, I was really only familiar with Mike's uh, Marvel work, superhero stuff. So at the beginning, when he proposed them, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's really the right fit. But then he sent me some of Mike's stuff, other stuff that he's done for AWA. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I saw it, I, I saw why he suggested them. Because he just like is like brilliant at rendering these sort of like um, almost, you know, really realistic, but still like laden with emotional, you know, resonance, these characters that he really does a great job of just drawing normal people, which is what this comic is largely about but then also a great job drawing like tech and machines which is the other half of what this comic is about so in the end he was just sort of an inspired choice i think was this uh an an instance of you know you had this this idea in in the hopper and we're just looking for a publisher or had awa approached you and said hey you know pitch us something uh, you know, we might have a little both. You know, I, I had this idea for a long time, and I'd, I'd sent it to other places, and they they weren't really excited about it. Uh, but then AWA, like Axel called me, and he's like, "Well, you know, we, we'd like for you to pitch something at AWA." I said, "Well, I do have this project I'd really want to do that you know nobody else is kind of like." Now, it probably wasn't the way to sell it, telling him about all the you know showing him all my rejection slips. <laughs> but I was like, I have "This project I really want to do, but no one else seems to want to take it on." It's called "Not All Robots," and I sent him the pitch, and he's like, "I love it." And uh, I went to his office in New York and talked about it. But yeah, he was on board pretty much from day one. Right on. Um, so uh, talking about like you know when you're working with an artist for the first time, whether it's it's Mike Diodato or it's it's Sean Isaacs on Fantastic Four Life Story, how do you kind of get the ball rolling in developing that rapport? Because you know I imagine working with an artist for the first time is very different from say working with Steve Pugh for the third or fourth time. Right, it, it totally is, and I think that the process really is. I I think your your working relationship is going to go a lot smoother the more you can sort of get on the same page before the, before you even start Mm -hmm. before, you know, the pencils even start coming out before the thumbnails have conversations about what the world looks like, about what the characters are like. So I try to make like a little, um, I wouldn't say a style guide, but some sort of like a little Bible for the artist to like talking about the different characters and how I want them to be and, and how they, they, they play in my mind. And almost always the artist will change what you have written down and change it for the better because, you know, they bring their own creativity to it as well. So then you have this conversation about like, sort of like, you know, the artist sort of improving on your vision and you're, you may be dialing them back because they, they didn't know about a plot point that's going to come up later, which maybe requires them 
the the character or the scene, the world to be handled slightly different. But the more of that you can do at the beginning before they're actually putting down pencils and inks, mm -hmm. uh, the better the artwork is going to be and the smoother your working relationship is going to be because you're, the worst, the last thing you want to do as a writer is to say, I, this page won't work, redo it. Because that's like that's like a, at least a day out of another human being's life you've taken at that point. So you only do that if you really need to. And if this could have been avoided by like a like a three minute email or a you know a, a conversation over drinks uh, six months ago, then by all means avoid <laughs> having to wreck a person's week like that. So uh, you know, as somebody whose whose books often you know, are, are observing the human condition, you know, what, what makes robots uniquely suited to, to comment on that? Well, I think in a lot of ways they work as the perfect metaphor for us because they are uh, by nature being reduced to, to their economic function, uh, which is what this comic is largely about is about how dehumanizing it is to be reduced to like a single function and to be known as that function. You think of yourself as a plumber or as a, um, as you know, a, a construction worker or, or something like that, as opposed to like a human being who does this sort of thing out of necessity. Uh, and also I wanted it to be, is in part a metaphor about um, the, the privilege and entitlement of men. Uh, in fact, the title derives itself from sort of the not all men response to the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. where you know some guys are acting all butthurt because they're afraid they're going to be judged based upon the deep and very real emotional and physical pain that other men have inflicted on women like that's the thing they're concerned about well how is this how is the splash damage going to affect me here three thousand miles away you know it, and so it is kind of about like i think a, a title sort of reflects the um the sense of entitlement that the robots sort of experience because they have all the jobs they have all the money they have the privilege that society is uh, ostensibly bestowed upon them as the economically useful or economically most rewarded uh, people. But at the same time, they deal with the same sort of existential angst that we do because they're building their replacements mm -hmm. just like we are. They're building like these realistic looking, these, these human looking robots called mandroids basically to replace them. So they deal with this very real knowledge that they are working as much as they replace the humans, they are themselves about to be replaced by the mandroids. And I think that's sort of what creates a lot of the tension in human relationships is the fact that we all feel, we all live in constant worry of becoming obsolescent. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and I wanted to, to talk about how that is kind of the source of a lot of, our, a lot of a conflict, as opposed to the conflict actually being that, that, that you know, driven by, the, by real divisions between us. A lot of it is divisions that are created because they are useful to the people who profit from those divisions. So that's a very wordy answer. I apologize. I know. <laughs> Love a wordy answer. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the more you talk, the less we do. And two <laughs> thumbs on that. Also true. <laughs> that should be the, the tagline of the show. <laughs> yeah. So the robots in this book have amazing names. And I was curious, you know, whether is that was something you spent an outsized amount of time thinking about, or were you just on a heater one day and you were like, all right, razor ball, crush Lord, slice the trunk, go. It's more the second one. Like I just sort of the first thing I came up with, I just sort of wrote down. And in my mind, I always kind of like thought these are placekeeper names. Like I will eventually come up with better names and rename these robots. But it, I just never did. I never came up with better names. Like they got stuck with you know, um, Crush Lord and Razor Ball, <laughs> Slicetron. There, there, are, there are GoBots that would kill for names like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But uh, now we'll uh, we'll make room for uh, a couple questions from our uh, Gold Star Twitter Inquisitor, uh, Asimov Fangirl, who uh, asked when I put the call out today. Uh, number one, uh, why do you think a lot of robot stories deal mostly with the Frankenstein complex? Well, I think because the the, the big question with technology since the age of science, since the we've had technology, the, the questions like can we do this have been answered. Uh, progressively, yes, we can. Yes, we can. There's, there, there's not within science a similar body of people asking, should we do this? Mm -hmm. and so I think that's kind of become the role of fiction writers and the role of philosophers. And, and you know, I think Mary Shelley was sort of the first person to like 
actually pose that question. Well, because you can do a thing, does that mean you should? And so I think that's because that role has largely been relegated to writers. Uh, we've, we've had to sort of pick up the mantle and, and pose questions about technology from that sort of Frankensteinian, if that's a word, uh, perspective. It is now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, definitely should we, uh, a time-honored question from Mary Shelley to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, she also asked, uh, besides uh, uh, Mr. Diodato, uh, which are, are some of your favorite artistic depictions of robots? Well, um, I loved the, uh, the artwork that um, Mobius did on, on his robots. And I also really loved, I think probably my my favorite um, are the uh, the um, Jimenez's like tech and robots for the uh, for Jodorowsky's um, Metabarons saga. Ah. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's just gorgeous. Everything's it's just a beautifully drawn book, and most of it is like spaceships and robots and technology, and it's you could just look at it for days. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. Also, of course, you got to give a nod to Jack Kirby. All that Kirby tech is just fantastic. Certainly. The main family in the book uh, lives in Atlanta. For, and they live in a big domed city because all the cities at this point are domed because everything is an environmental wasteland. Uh, the other city that we see a lot of in issue one is Orlando. Orlando is there sort of for a very specific plot point. But... Why Atlanta? Do you have a particular affection or, or hatred for Atlanta, and thus it was the place to be a domed city in a wasteland? Well, I do like Atlanta. I don't. I I do have an affection for Atlanta. But the reason why I chose Atlanta is because the, I don't know if you have ever been to the um, uh, the the CNN Center uh, in downtown, but it's kind of what gave me the idea because they have you know this this the center where it's like the hotel. Uh, the, uh, the the mall, the um, convention center it, are all sort of connected. You never you don't have to go outside to go to any of it. It's like this little bubbled city within the city, and it's beautiful inside there. It's air conditioned. It's nice. You know, there's there's natural light coming in through the windows, uh, and and you know when it, when you go outside and it's like humid and sweltering, you just want to come back into that bubble. So I thought they should just gradually expand the bubble mm-hmm. until it takes over the whole city. Uh, it's what I thought when I was there. So I, I kind of made it bubble Atlanta because they were, they sort of inspired the idea of these bubble cities. So uh, moving on from, from not all robots, uh, you've also got fantastic four life story coming out right now, which is your real time take on, on Marvel's first family. Um, one of the big themes of this book, which, you know, kind of starts them off in 1961 and moves them, you know, decade by decade, uh, is how characters handle impending doom. You know, Galactus is viewed as this existential threat, uh, but Reed seems to be the only one taking it seriously uh, in that sort of fix everything way that, that Jonathan Hickman really dug into right. 10 years ago. Uh, at the same time, you've got Johnny Storm, who says, you know, if Galactus doesn't get us a nuclear war or deteriorating environment, well, so, you know, might as well party. Uh, which of these perspectives, which are, are kind of these two very different looks at the same issue what, or, you know, which, which member of the force perspective has been the most challenging to write? Well, I, I think they all are pretty valid and they're all kind of like different parts of my own sort of psyche, like mm-hmm. the sort of different opinions I have depending upon how I'm feeling that day. But, but very much what I wanted to do with that series is just kind of think about the characters and how they approach life. And, and uh, which one of the reasons why I gave each of them a chance to narrate an issue. Like the 60s issue is narrated by Reed, the 70s by Sue, 80s obviously by Johnny. Um, but And I really wanted to see just how their different perspectives would sort of define their relationships and their approach to the world. And the way I sort of, the way I sort of envisioned them was um, Reed uh, fundamentally wants to save the world. He, and he's devoted his life to saving it. Uh, Sue, on the other hand, wants to change the world. She wants to make the world a better place, make it a place, as she says, worth saving. Uh, Johnny views life as a party. You know, he, he's like, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You might as well have a good time while you're doing it. And, and Ben's uh, 
wants the love that's been denied to him. He's a guy who feels like he's been, he's the only one who's not able to resume a human existence because he doesn't change back to his normal human form. And in a way they all very much inform the plot of the series and they all very much, uh, I think, express a different part of us in, in, you know, sort of our feelings. I mean, sometimes the world does feel like too, it does feel like there's, like we were talking about earlier, too many crises going on to worry about them. And you still got to just have fun and live your life. But at the same time, you've got to, you know, you, you, you can't be so self-absorbed that you just shut out the rest of the world. And you've got to like do something about this planet that you live on. There's a wonderful quote in the, uh, the non-canonical gospel of Thomas. And this is me paraphrasing. It's not the actual quote, but at one point, um, Christ says something to the effect of the, um, if you, if you let, you can change the world. If you let, if you let it into your heart, the world will destroy you. If you do not let it, I'm butchering it now, but it's like the, um, your heart can save you if you let it change the world. The world will destroy you if you do not let it change your heart. Basically, the way it, way it is. And I, that's kind of, I think, what the Fantastic Four approach is to uh, life on the planet is like this question about how much you should surrender of your actual life to save the world and how much of saving the world is what makes your life worthwhile. So, uh, what was your. Uh you know, FF knowledge base going into this book? Were you, you know, a fan, a regular reader? Was it something you had to brush up on as you're kind of putting a treatment together? Yeah, I had to brush up on it for sure. And I read some, like uh, a lot of Fantastic Four going into it. I'm not like a completist or a huge fan, but at the same time, there's such a, a, a big pillar in comics history that I wasn't completely unaware. I, I knew like about the, the big events that they had they'd been through and, and, and the characters. It wasn't like having to like, brush up on some obscure it wasn't like like i was writing a red b comic or something <laughs> uh but yeah it, but i found that a lot too and i didn't want to get to the point where i had so much respect for the source material which i do that i that i let it hamper my creativity mm-hmm. that i felt like i had to be doing so much homage that i didn't actually make anything new uh which is the worst thing there's there's nothing worse than a tasteful homage nobody wants to read that so um, I had to make sure to, to leave enough room for my own sort of not do so much research. That I destroyed my own original take on it. Mm-hmm. So, so that was your look at the FF part of the story. Uh, what kind of research went into the, the, the decades part of the story? Did you do a you know, deep dive into specific points or was it more of a, let me get a general feel for the zeitgeist of the 70s and 80s and 90s and pepper in bits that make sense with that decade, but aren't going to leave people like scratching their heads and having to do a ton of diving on research for that part. Well, I started with the Fantastic Four, Four story itself. I figured out what the story I want to tell with the Fantastic Four. And then I went back and I thought, well, how would this have worked with the, the, the times they were in? Like how would have, you know, obviously the, the, the first one is obvious, like how their disaster in space with the gamma rays would have been like, would work with like the space race that was happening in 1961. That, that part is obvious, but also, you know, how the, the changing awareness of like civil rights and women's rights in the seventies would have um, been hard for, harder for Reed to, to like sort of cat, keep up with than Sue. And also how it would have affected places like Wakanda, um, the, the growing sort of uh, post-colonial awareness of like African nations and, and stuff, how that would have affected. So I went back and sort of like did the history part later. I figured out what parts of history would have been like, uh, like in the 80s one, this probably isn't a spoiler since it's already been out, but you know, like Reed is preparing for this big defense for Galactus. And according to the 80s issue, he's the one that actually comes up with the idea or uh, strategic defense initiative, mm-hmm. uh, what became known as the Star Wars defense. But his idea was to use it against Galactus, not against the Soviet Union. And the U.S. government said, like, hey, that's a great idea. What if we pointed those lasers <laughs> this way? Which just disgusts him because he's like, you're not taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 love, I love that moment. Uh, just that, that, that felt like a very Mark Russell moment, especially, you know, just Reed being like, what are you what are you basically saying what are you a fucking idiot 
<laughs> That's where we keep our stuff. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he, ca- he came uh, as close as you can get to with having Reed Richards say, "What are you a fucking idiot?" Yeah, <laughs> but but I think yeah, it is. It just like um, infuriates them in the same way it infuriates me because it feels like so much of what is happening in like politics is people just sort of fiddling while Rome burns, or to use another cliche, uh, rearranging the decks, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. It's like none of that matters if the ship is sinking, and the ship is sinking. Absolutely, um, I will say there is uh, one of my one, one little moment that you know isn't isn't you know history dependent or any of that, but just something that I really enjoyed. Uh, there's a scene in issue two where Namor is coming up out of the ocean uh, in his classic green swim trunks. And just walks into the library, opens the door, says, it's okay, I'm a local. So nobody hassles him about no shirt, no shoes. And just puts his feet up and, and is reading Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. <laughs> yeah, I like doing those like little micro cross, like those little micro things where there's just like details. I guess Easter eggs is what we call them mm-hmm. now. Uh, little Easter eggs of like, like historical things. I've always liked to do that in my work, just sort of put them in the background or, and see who picks up on them. Yeah. It just it 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 was one of those things. It's apropos of nothing, but also what a great ad for libraries. <laughs> Go to the libraries. You know, the hot shirtless dude reading uh, reading uh, environmental lit. <laughs> yeah, actually, when when I wrote it, I I thought he was going to be in like his wetsuit, um, but then uh, Sean Durham like just buffed out, which I have to say changed the, the way I sort of uh, interpreted uh, the way a lot of scenes kind of read to me now. There's this like half naked, you know, weightlifter guy. <laughs> delivering these lines absolutely uh but aside from that uh you know because you're dealing with history you you you're you're working a lot of real world figures uh into this book you know kennedy reagan uh um carl sagan's been in it letterman uh you know was there a favorite uh interaction with a real world figure that uh that you wrote for it well uh one of my favorites is carl sagan um, because, you know, I, I kind of um, used him as a, sort of a gag character. Uh, and when I wrote the Flintstones, it was like almost sort of like, like a, like a, um, like a jerk or a, a sort of a, um, a, uh, a new Nick, I guess you'd say, but that's not the way I actually feel about him. I just needed somebody to represent, you know, this, this sort of like burgeoning scientific awareness in that comic. So I'm glad that I got a chance with uh, fantastic Four life story to, to use Carl Sagan again in a way that actually sort of more reflects the respect I have for him. He's one of those characters, one of those historical figures that pops up in comics every now and then. And I'm always happy to see him show up, whether it's there or with a giant ray gun in Atomic Robo. It just makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. I love Carl Sagan. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've, you've described issue three, which came out uh, last week as we're recording as, as family ties meets the day after, which it really truly is the perfect synthesis, uh, you know, uh, of that issue. You know, do you have a, a thinking of that as sort of the era of, of not just fear of nuclear annihilation, but the very special episode uh, era of television. Do you have a sort of a favorite, very special episode uh, from, from that era or barring that, uh, a, a favorite anti-drug PSA that was beaten into your head during that period. I don't know if I would describe it as a favorite, but I remember being kind of blown away when Nancy Reagan showed up on different strokes, That's like completely one. out of the blue was not really organic at all. Just sort of showed up to like talk to like Arnold and Willis about drugs. And even then when I, I was a kid and even then it just felt this really stilted and weird. And I, I just got the feeling that nobody who was, in that scene wanted to be there and so i still remember it as like a uniquely awkward uh segment of television that's 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 a good one yeah different strokes was also definitely very good at the very well maybe not very good had a lot of the very special episodes put it that way very memorable good for different values of good but they uh i think towards the end that was like what they were that was their life preserver that's what they were hoping would keep them from getting canceled it's like well we've got like 10 very special episodes planned this season we're gonna be dealing we're with the bicycle athletes, man an entire arc yeah <laughs> i'm surprised they weren't like having like like willis get his foot amputated or you know something like that. uh they, if, if it had gone another season <laughs> yeah oh man 
you've written uh, a couple short run superhero stories now uh, between FF Life Story and uh, Superman versus Imperious Lex. Uh, in both cases, you've you know proved you understand the core of these characters. Could you see yourself doing a a longer superhero run at some point? Yeah, I I, I would like to do a longer superhero run. I, I'm a little wary of ongoings, mm-hmm. just because I feel like I like to tell stories that have a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. I like to, uh, David Mamet has a great line where he says that uh, writing writing a play is like running a marathon. And writing for television is like running until you die. <laughs> and I kind of feel the same way about like writing a limited series versus writing an ongoing. It's like, I'd, I'd rather not write something until it sucks. I'd be open to writing an ongoing, but I'd want to have a distinct, you know, number of issues when I got, went into it, knowing I was going to get out and, what, and how I wanted to, to end it. I wouldn't want to just write until it turned me to mush. It's fair. <laughs> Uh, but I do have some longer projects coming up that I that I have not announced, so I can't really discuss. But I got some sure. like longer forays into the superhero world coming up at some point. Very cool. Uh, so next, let, let's pivot to uh, Ahoy, where you've got a bunch of stuff uh, going on uh, again, seemingly all at once, but not you know not really. Um, yeah, not start- in my life exactly. Uh, so let's start with, with second coming already in progress. Uh, that one hit a bit of a delay. And, and my only question with that is, is everyone doing okay? Yeah, no, everyone's doing fine. Now we're back on track. There was just some unforeseeable things that came up in the middle of production. Uh, but we, we should be back on track now and the trade should come out about the same time it was going to come out anyway. So people who are waiting for the trade won't be inconvenienced at all. Um, but yeah, we're, um, I'm really happy with the way the uh, second uh, series is turning out, and I, I'm hoping that we get to do a third. That would be that would be great. Uh, did the did the hiatus uh, give you an opportunity to make any changes to the story, or had you had all the scripts in hand? I wrote the, the issues that are coming now. I wrote about a year ago. Okay. So I I had beaten them to death. I had boiled that potato. You know, for for months before before it even got to the, that point, so uh, I wasn't going to go back. And that that said, I did go back and like uh, read like some of the issues, thinking I was going to like do these maybe these radical changes. But I thought I've already, yeah. If I boil this potato anymore, it's going to turn into a completely different life form. So <laughs> just let it go. There's not not comparing myself to the Grand Impressionists, but you know there were cases where the Louvre had to kick out like Monet or you know because he was sneaking into the Louvre to touch up his paintings and it's like at some point when you're hanging in the Louvre just let it go it's it's done <laughs> not that this is the Louvre per se but yeah it, you know artists have to learn to like at some point let go let God you know mm-hmm. your work belongs to the universe now or otherwise you get Hayden Christensen in Return of the Jedi <laughs> I, I do, do kind of like the idea of Tom Pyre tapping Mark on the shoulder. <laughs> Time to leave, buddy. <laughs> you don't have to go home. I like can't to stay imagine here. myself like James Brown being led off the stage with, you know, like a bathrobe, but it never it doesn't happen. No one cares. Uh, but uh, beyond Second Coming, uh, this was announced, I think, at Comic-Con at home last month. You also got My Bad coming out in November. And uh, this one's interesting because you're splitting up writing duties with Bryce Ingmar uh, and Peter Krause's drawing. And each of you is writing from a different character's perspective. Um, how, did th- how did this one come together? Well, it started, Bryce Ingman is a, a friend of mine, and he uh, wrote um, the uh, – he had, he had originally written his uh, – take on he had originally written my bad as to be sort of a backup to um to second coming like it was going to be a backup story that ran in the back but it was all from the perspective of the villain uh emperor king and he had this great story where he uh sets up this um this horrible like torture trap for this hero that he's got this vendetta against and ends up catching the wrong guy and the the guy's caught in the torture trap and he can't let him out because it's like sealed so that he's going to be tortured in this thing for days. But they get to talking, they hit it off, they become friends. But but he, he becomes friends with this guy knowing that he's caught in the torture trap and it's going to go through all 17 stages 
of torture and there's nothing he could do to stop it. But we love the story so much, Tom and I, that, you know, and, and he had written more that we thought, well, why don't we just expand this and do a whole series and you just write all the parts with this villain character, Emperor King, and then I'll come up with my own sort of hero to be sort of the, the uh, on the opposite side. And, and so I created like a billionaire vigilante hero who comes from like his family's, his family owns like, has like this lamp fortune. They own this lamp company that makes them like billionaires. So he, he goes around as the, the chandelier and he's got this giant glass chandelier for a helmet. Um, so I write the parts about the chandelier and Bryce writes the parts about um, Emperor King and Emperor King's little sidekick, Acid Chimp, who, uh, as the name suggests, is just like a chimp with a vat of acid, <laughs> throws it on people. Um, and all the artwork is being done by, by Peter Krause, uh, which I'm really happy about because he's turning in some amazing pages. Uh, in all fairness, it might not be that obvious because he could have been a chimp on acid. Yeah, I have to explain the concept. <laughs> or a chimp made of acid. Yeah, they, they could have. The, the point is, you had us at acid chimp. Let's. Oh yeah, absolutely. No matter what <laughs> the. Right. The important thing is, there's an acid chimp involved. One hundred percent. I do. I do like how you know with uh, with Ahoy. Uh, a lot of times, these these random backups can end up being like their next series. So my bad. You know, hashtag danger uh snelson uh which i believe was a backup you know what i mean it's like this this wonderful perpetual you know self-perpetuating story economy uh, yeah that's one of the advantages of having their little backups and their their pro stories and stuff is that you never know what's going to inspire more ideas and and also it just makes it gives the comics a dimension that you don't see a lot in comics today where you get like so much more bang for your buck all these little extras absolutely love love a good back matter uh, and then, oh, yes. And then uh, also Billionaire Island coming back for uh, a second round uh, with with Steve Few uh, centering on on business dog uh, who obviously had a, a major role uh, in the first volume. Uh, I won't I won't spoil it for people who haven't read it. Um, I, you know, he. <laughs> the end of the story is predicated on the actions of, of business dog, uh, but. At the same time, it's just a you know it's just a dog, uh, right. so I, you know I, I feel compelled as as the dog loving half of this podcast to ask, is business dog a good boy? Yeah, I think it probably more accurate to say he's an indifferent boy, but it just doesn't sound very good to say oh you're an indifferent boy you're an indifferent boy, but he doesn't mean anybody harm. He's not doing anything out of he's in a lot of ways he's sort of the. Um, the avatar for you know late stage capitalism itself where it's just a system mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't try to you know destroy the, the planet and people's lives it's just the way the system is built it's going to do that uh so it's not about like demonizing people or like or like judging these people based upon their individual morality it's about this the morality of creating the system that allows things like this to happen in the first place mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong or right, for that matter, about a business dog, but there's something in, incredibly wrong with allowing him to control, you know, like a, a third of the, the planet's wealth when he makes decisions by based upon what dog food he feels like eating that day. <laughs> uh, as long as I can scratch him behind the ears without feeling guilty. That's the important thing. <laughs> So finally, of the forward-looking projects for you, you, you've got um, is Deadbox from Vault. Uh, the solicit text for this one is pretty simple. Uh, welcome to the town of Lost Turkey, where the main source of entertainment is a cursed DVD machine that seems to know more about the fate of its citizens than they do. Uh, how did Deadbox find its way to Vault? They are really firing all cylinders on these uh, horror comics lately. Well, we were talking on Twitter, um, uh, Adrian Wassel and, and I, like, uh, and like, uh, I mentioned that I had an idea that might be good for Vault. And he's like, DM me. Uh, and I'd also been talking to Tim Seeley about wanting to do a comic together. So originally we were going to do uh, Deadbox together. And he was going to do the art and I was going to, we were both going to kind of write it, but I was mostly going to write it. But then he had to step off because he had other engagements. Um, so I, uh, we ended up, he ended up, uh, Vault ended up pairing me with Benjamin Tisma instead, 
which is great because Benjamin's art is like, I mean, he really is kind of what I was envisioning when I, when I was thinking about this and, and I, and his pages just look fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's an idea. It's actually a couple of ideas that I had sort of that sort of naturally combined into one. And I want to do one, a comic about sort of, I grew up in a sort of semi-rural environment where I felt like I was, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't intellectually stimulated and I felt like if I stayed there, I was going to die. And I'm sure a lot of people that grew up in those places probably feel the same way. So I want to write about that. And also um, I had an idea for like all these movies that would never get, never get made in a million years, but should be made. Um, and I thought, you know, how great would it be to be like a, like a, a writer of straight to red box movies where there's no expectation that this is going to be good or popular, but here's some money, go make a movie that we can <laughs> rent out to people who have no other choice, but to rent something from Redbox. Um, so that's kind of the, the two ideas that I had that sort of combined and, and they, they sort of, the meeting point is that the movies uh, that these people rent from this cursed DVD machine have like a direct sort of prophetic link on what they're going through at the time in their lives when they're, when they're, when they're watching this. So the movies sort of act as this sort of metaphor for what's happening in the story. A very cool concept, but uh, before Redbox, before Netflix in those dark days of the past were you a person who liked to peruse the video store oh yeah i love it in fact i worked my way through college at a video store which gives you some idea how old i am but um yeah i i, I worked at the now defunct uh, of course they're all defunct but i worked at the especially defunct uh hollywood video uh here yes. in portland uh for for about four years and um, yeah, I know, and I worked there primarily to, so I could be paid in movies, um, so I could get free movies and take them home and watch them. I watched so many movies, and when I was a kid too, you know, going to the gas station or the the hardware store and running the movies there was like a way to sort of it was like going to the opera for me. It was like a way to sort of escape the, the mundane existence that life had had hitherto thrown me. And you know, it was a way to sort of transcend the limitations of going outside and, and seeing nothing. It's basically the same reason I worked at uh, Sam Goody, <laughs> another uh, another dinosaur of a bygone age. Yeah, um, I had a, a lot of friends that worked in the record stores, and mm -hmm. you know, we created this sort of golden triangle. It's like what you need then is a, another friend who works in a Peter pizza parlor, and then you can trade the. <laughs> The free movies for the free CDs for the uh, uh, for the free pizza, and you've got this really great sort of um, black market sub economy going. <laughs> Minimum wage barter system, yes. Right, that's how you survived back then. Do you recall the last movie you remember renting physically? Mm. You know, I think the last one I actually rented. Um, paid money for. I think it was like something that was impossible to get any other way. I want to say it was uh, Monty Hellman's Iguana. Okay. Um, which I could not, it wasn't available on like, and this was back when the Netflix had the, like the actual DVDs, but I don't think they had mm -hmm. it. Yeah, but we have like this um, movie store or this video store that's still around in Portland called Movie Madness that sort of prides itself on being sort of a museum, a curated sort of like hall of like all these really hard to get movies. And so I went there and, uh, and it's also now kind of a museum for, for movie making. They have all kinds of movie memorabilia in the, uh, in the, the video store itself. Uh, and I think it, you know, they don't even really survive based upon video rentals. They, 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 they're like a public institution. Like they get donations. They get, you know, they're like, like, grant money uh because they they're like a cornerstone of sort of film preservation in portland but yeah i'm i'm, I'm gonna I'm, i don't know if it's right but i'm gonna go with iguana which okay. is a yeah i i definitely was like one of those early netflix adopters who was getting the disc in the mail so i think my last physical movie I'm between Children of Men and the documentary. This film is not yet rated about how movies get rated, get 
get like you know R or PG or whatever ratings. Mm-hmm. Might have been one of those. Matt, you're well, thinking Man was a great yeah. choice. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. <laughs> I actually think mine might have been the Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man. Wow, yeah. Yeah, but wouldn't wouldn't the Nick Cage version be a better uh, fitting end to the physical media age? It 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 may have been a more appropriate one, but it wouldn't have been better. <laughs> it didn't end with a bang. It ended with a man yelling, "Not the bees." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I read uh, in an interview with with Games Radar that uh, this book was inspired. Uh, well, you actually just already mentioned it but by the town you grew up in. Uh, which in turn was the real Springfield, apparently, that inspired The Simpsons. Uh, not a question, more of a comment. I don't know how to process this other than to say that I grew up in a state with two Springfields and wow. neither of them could be, you know, <laughs> neither of the, the fact that neither of them is, is the one uh, is, is, is disappointing for me personally. Mind-boggling, but, uh, yeah. No, yeah, I was born in S- Springfield, Oregon. Um, but I, I grew up primarily in Eugene, which is not a small city, but I, but we lived on like the outsk- out, outskirts of the outskirts of Eugene. This is the way my neighborhood worked. Like if you went out the, the front door, it looked like sort of a normal residential suburban street. If you went out the back door, there's just nothing for miles. It was just like a horse pasture, uh, uh, you know, until, uh, until you got to the, fr- the, the, the freeway, like five miles beyond that. And that was sort of, and it was, and it, and it, what didn't feel like, I mean, when people think of Eugene, they think of the university, they think of like the, you know, the, the PhDs and the lawyers and the anarchists talking politics over, you know, Rosé. That, that wasn't my Eugene. My Eugene was more like the, uh, the shit kickers and the, the lumber mill employees and, you know, the farmers. Uh, that's the part of Eugene I grew up in. And, they are two very different worlds, but I think one of the things that made it kind of an interesting thing place to grow up in was the fact that the two worlds did sort of collide. Like if you went downtown, you there would be punks and there would be hippies, and and you you learned to sort of coexist. You know, and, and you know, country folk and more sort of sophisticated city folk. Uh, in in the bookstores, like there was this one sort of store that wasn't too far from our house that sold paperbacks, and you could get them for like ten for a buck sometimes they're super cheap paperback books but you'd go in there and you know most small like rural semi-rural places you go to a store like that and they're all like harlequin romance novels or they're all louis l'amour novels but this is a place where like you could get a harlequin romance novel if you wanted one or a louis l'amour but then they also had like ray bradbury or they also had like like books by um you know by like anarchist philosophers yeah, you never knew what you're going to get in there and we made it sort of like an interesting place to sort of like go into the store and, and you never knew i never knew what i was going to come out with usually i just pick the things with the most with the most messed up covers uh, some of which my mom would then just turn around and throw away um, i remember one time we went to the library and she would let me check out two books whenever we went to the library and one of the books I brought her was a uh, I don't even remember what the title of the book was but it had on the cover this missile with the face of Adolf Hitler and <laughs> and she's like I, I don't think so um, and I was like well why not this book looks like this has got to be amazing look at the cover uh, it's about Hitler as a missile and um, she said she told me something about like well if, if we if we check out that book, they're gonna, the library is going to put us on a weirdo list. <laughs> Which, if there is a weirdo list, I'm sure I'm on it now. But, um, but yeah, that was how I how I judged books back then. As someone who worked at a library, I do not believe we had a weirdo list. <laughs> as opposed to a, as opposed to a comic shop where we call it our reservists yeah the, the weirdo they should have a weirdo list but it should act sort of like the staff recommendations that you see at like, yeah. like comic book stores it's like here's the weirdos are reading these days if you're interested absolutely that's that, that's for that's for that's not a point of shame that's for targeted recommendations yeah right straight so going back to something that ended a couple months ago, but was something I really enjoyed and wanted to bounce a couple of questions off you. Um, Superman versus Imperious Lex uh, was one of the highlights of DC's future state initiative uh, for me anyway. And for uh, those 
our stuff was on the staff over at Comics and Staff who were reviewing. Um, but it was also a little apart from that sort of uber plot that was going through a lot of that Superman Future State stuff. Um, how did you get involved with Future State? Was it something you pitched or did they say, hey, do you want to pitch something for this? They actually pitched it to me, like pitched the idea of doing uh, Superman versus Imperius Lex. Uh, and the, 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 the conceit they gave me, the, the central concept was that they wanted it to be set on Lexor and they kind of, they, they suggested it be like a sort of metaphor for Brexit. And so that's kind of what, what caused me to come up with the, which I don't know why they wanted a Brexit comic, uh, but uh, we, I, what caused me to come up with the storyline about the uh, United Planets Um but but yeah, and then they expanded it from two issues, which they were initially going to give me a three. So it allowed me to like change it and to also include sort of a COVID metaphor in the third one with the robot invasion. Mm. Uh, but yeah, they, they really sort of approached me about like writing the Superman for Imperius Lex. And they never really bugged me about tying in to the, the main overt, which I don't really like to do. Mm. I was equally problematic when it was like, you're the villain. Like I wrote a few of the Year of the Villain books and none of them had anything to do with the rest of the Year of the Villain stuff. They didn't really tie into like the uh, uh, the rest of the, the overarching plot. They were just kind of their own thing. There's a bit in the series where there are these two talking head news journalists, big scare quotes on that because they're they're mouthpieces for for luthor uh and one of them gets blasted by luthor's robot and so the one of them that's left for the remainder of the series is kind of singed on one side and it's not referenced right. was that something you put in the script or was that pure steve Pugh just thinking you know this would be a kind of a fun touch well, I put it in the script just because I wanted it to be sort of like a visual reminder that they uh, they are serving, you know, Lex Luthor slash Roger Ailes out of fear and terror for their existence. Like the, you, you cross this man at your peril and they all know it. So they're going to tow the party line. But the way Steve did it with like her hair being sort of blonde and sort of curly but just like completely charcoal on the other side, I thought was just brilliant. And that was all that was all him. It's a really, really memorable little visual bit. Um, is there any chance in the future that you might return to the book's true hero, Lois Lane? Because I, I love good Lois, and you gave some real good Lois in that book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I love writing Lois Lane because, you know, it, it, it's, it's always sort of like sort of ego-pleasing for a writer to write about another writer. <laughs> It's like, oh, this this writer's getting the respect that I deserve. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I would love to write some more Lois Lane, and I I actually am including Lois as a character in a project which I cannot really talk about because it hasn't been announced yet. But gotcha. there will be more gotcha. Lois. I will, I will get to write some more Lois. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I I was thinking about this after Matt had put that question into the notes, you know, because you've definitely written other, you know, Lois inspired characters, you know, uh, Sheila Sharp in Second Coming, uh, Shelley Bly in Billionaire Island. Uh, you know, what is it about the brat, the brassy reporter archetype? Um, well, that works? I think it's, it's, for me, it's, it's, um, it's a reminder of what we've sort of lost in the age of like the three person newsroom, the age of sort of like, uh, you know, news stories being about what people are saying about the news story on Twitter. You know, um, it, it really is more about like an aspirational thing about what journalism was and could be. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of things that you cannot talk about, uh, we saw on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, uh, a quick tease of something in something involving you and Steve Lieber. Uh, I don't know what it is, obviously. Uh, looks like it involves Red Tornado at least a little bit. Uh, when do you right think on both. Okay, there we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, when do you think we get to find out what that is? Please don't say sometime in the next week. <laughs> no, I, um, 
I hope it's soon because, you know, I've written four issues of this thing and it's, it's only six issues long, but it hasn't been announced yet. But uh, yeah, uh, when they said, well, we were trying to think of an artist and they su suggested Steve Lieber, I was just like blown away. I had no idea that he would be available. But yeah, as soon as I mentioned, him, I was like, the search is over. <laughs> Bring me Steve Lieber. Yeah, no, I, I, I was going to ask whether Steve was somebody that you had wanted to work with, because as soon as I, I saw that pairing, I'm like, all right, I don't I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, no, he's always he's been long been someone I've, I've wanted to work with um, ever since the fix. I, when I read the fix, it's like, oh, this guy's a brilliant artist. And, and, he, and he really gets that sort of sensibility. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm just, you know, ecstatic that I, I get to work with him and we'll be even happier when I can actually talk about what we're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so as we're, we're round, you know, starting to, that, that decompress at the end of the, the show, um, th this one's a, a weird one, but I'm curious, uh, as someone who's known for writing, you know, Snagglepuss and the Flintstones and all of these sort of in introspective looking at society through these, you know, lenses of pop culture have you ever been tempted to sort of write the anti-Mark Russell comic, racing that's just big, dumb, you know, 90s style superhero dumbness just for the hell of it, either because you want to or just prove that you can? Well, that doesn't appeal to me, but but I am, I am interested in writing things that sort of deviate from what I've done before. Uh, in fact, I'm doing a project again. I'm talking about things I can't talk about, right. which there's, there's all, there's, it's like uh, most of the characters are animals. So there's very little dialogue. It's just, it's like mostly a quiet comic, which I really like. But yeah. And, and I think it's one of the, the things that appealed to me about writing dead box is that like a sort of a horror story um, set in this sort of, you know, more sort of realistic uh, American setting. I wanted it, it felt to me like like a real departure from things that I that I've written before. So I think it's important to challenge yourself and not just fall back on things you know you can do. If you feel too comfortable that you're going to nail a project, then it probably means you aren't you aren't challenging yourself enough. It probably means that you aren't you know you aren't growing as a writer. And I think it's important you know even if you do something well to continue growing. And so I don't know, I've got no real interest in writing, you know, like a, um, like a, like a nineties sort of action comic, like, like a young blood or something. Uh, I, I do like to sort of like stretch myself outside my comfort zone. Um, so uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading a, I'm a really good graphic novel about um, Napoleon's retreat from uh from Moscow hmm. called Berezina, uh, which is apparently a river he had to cross on the way from Moscow. But I love it because it's not really what you'd expect. You expect this, like a graphic novel about Napoleon to be about battles and about like combat, but it's really about the tedium and the logistics that go into war. It's like, oh, how many wagons do we have? How many horses did we lose last night? You know, um, like how much food do we have? How, long the, how much longer is that going to feed our troops? And then like them coming to the the hard reality that like invading Russia was a massive mistake <laughs> and, and, you know, sort of weighing that against his ego, but that's really good. I'm also reading uh, blue flame, which, oh, you know, mm -hmm. which, which I'm really enjoying and um, uh, Supergirl, Tom King's Supergirl, which I think is probably my favorite thing of his since uh, Mr. Miracle. Ah. So that's just the things that come straight to mind, but that's what I've been reading recently. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's uh, Mark. This has been fantastic. It's been an hour. Uh, final question: How can people follow you online and and keep up with the uh, litany of books that we have talked about this past hour? Well, I'm most active on Twitter, so the best place to follow me is there, and the handle is just at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S, -S, sort of like a walrus but a man, but, uh, <laughs> but with two S's. All right, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. 
You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, that one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. WMQA!